0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships. All that brought to you, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and also Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric illness and needing treatment for it, as well as to better inform the general public about mental health-related issues. And This edition of Psychiatry Today was pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, December 7, 2016. Uh want to just mention that there will be one more new podcast for this year. And then on the 21st and 28th of December, America's Web Radio will be replaying an archived copy of my podcast. So just to give you a little heads up about scheduling and uh if you're not interested in listening to reruns, which I could totally understand that really. Um, very, very interesting item for you to start tonight's podcast uh, This is a subject that I've really not talked much about on the podcast over the years um, Religion uh, There is, um, I don't think, a lot of overlap between psychiatry and religion uh, Some people think there is, some people would like to see more My position on that is psychiatric problems stem from disorders of the brain and the brain's physiology and biochemistry is the same no matter what faith you subscribe to or even if you choose not to subscribe to any faith. But nonetheless, science has found that having a strong faith, no matter which one it is, is helpful in recovery from any illness whatsoever, and psychiatric illness is no exception. Uh, So that much is very clear. But this is a very interesting article. It's about research in which scientists put those with a very strong sense of faith in a brain scanner to see what circuits are actively involved in spiritual experiences. And what they found were that brain reward circuits are activated in these experiences, in those who have a devout spiritual and religious experience, much the same reward circuits that are activated by drastically different activities or thoughts, as we'll get into Shortly, But I think it's timely to discuss this. The major religions are having significant holidays coming up in the next several weeks, uh, so it's appropriate for the time of year. <clears throat> Religious and spiritual experiences activate the brain reward circuits in much the same way as, listen to this, love, sex, gambling, drugs, and music report researchers at the University of Utah School of Medicine. The findings were published November 29th in the journal Social Neuroscience. We're just beginning to understand how the brain participates in experiences that believers interpret as spiritual, divine, or transcendent. That, according to senior author and Neuroradiologist Jeff Anderson. Neuroradiology is simply the specialty area of brain imaging. In the last few years, brain imaging technologies have matured in ways that are letting us approach questions that have been around for millennia. Specifically, the investigators set out to determine Which brain networks are involved in representing spiritual feelings in one particular group, devout Mormons, by creating an environment that triggered participants to, quote, feel the spirit, unquote? Identifying this feeling of peace and closeness with God in oneself and others is a critically important part of Mormons' lives, They make decisions based on these feelings. They treat them as confirmation of doctrinal principles, and they view them as a primary means of communication with the divine. So right off the bat, we have to understand that this research was done in a very homogeneous group, all Mormons. So we can't speculate how much or if this would be generalizable to those of other faiths, uh, be they other Christian denominations, uh, or Judaism, or Islam, or Buddhism, what have you. But in any case, let's talk about what they did. During functional MRI scans, and again, these are the type of MRI scans of the brain where you can actually image particular circuits and regions of the brain that are active when people are thinking certain thoughts or performing certain mental tasks they had 19 young adult mormon church members including 7 males I'm sorry 7 females and 12 males performed four tasks in response to content meant to evoke spiritual feelings The hour-long exam included six minutes of rest, six minutes of audio-visual control. Uh, That is just a video detailing their church's membership statistics. So you have six minutes of imaging, pretty nondescript uh, brain activity to compare uh, other bits of imaging to. And then eight minutes of quotations by Mormon and world religious leaders, then 8 minutes of reading familiar passages from the Book of Mormon, 12 minutes of audiovisual stimuli that were church-produced video of family and biblical scenes, and other religiously evocative content, and then another 8 minutes of quotations. <clears throat> During the initial quotations portion of the exam, participants, each a former full-time missionary so that's another characteristic that uh, somewhat limits the generalizability uh that they they were just from one particular religious sect and also had at once at one time been former full-time missionaries uh so it was during the initial part of the exam which was just religious quotations uh the subjects were shown a series of quotes each followed by the question, are you feeling the spirit? Participants responded with answers ranging from not feeling to very strong feeling. Researchers collected detailed assessments of the feelings of participants who almost universally reported experiencing the kinds of feelings typical of an intense worship service. They described feelings of peace and physical sensations of warmth. Many were in tears by the end of the scan. In one experiment, participants pushed a button when they felt a peak spiritual feeling while watching church-produced stimuli. When the study participants were instructed to think about a savior, about being with their families for eternity, about their heavenly rewards, their brains and bodies physically responded, according to lead author Michael Ferguson, who carried out the study as a bioengineering graduate student at the University of Utah. Based on the functional MRI scans, the researchers found that powerful spiritual feelings were reproducibly associated with activation in the nucleus accumbens. This is a critical brain region for processing reward. Uh, For lack of a better term, the nucleus accumbens is our pleasure and reward center of the brain. Peak activity occurred one to three seconds before participants pushed the button and was replicated in each of the four tasks. As participants were experiencing peak feelings, their hearts beat faster and their breathing deepened. <clears throat> in addition to the brain's reward circuits, the researchers found that spiritual feelings were associated with the medial prefrontal cortex. This is a complex brain region that is activated by tasks involving valuation, judgment, and moral reasoning. Spiritual feelings also activated brain regions associated with focused attention. Religious experience is perhaps the most influential part of how people make decisions that affect all of us, for good and for ill. Understanding what happens in the brain to contribute to those decisions is really important. We don't yet know if believers of other religions would respond the same way. Work by others suggests that the brain responds quite differently to meditative and contemplative practices, characteristic of some Eastern religions, but so far little is known about the neuroscience of Western Spiritual Practices. The study is the first initiative of the Religious Brain Project, launched by a group of University of Utah researchers in 2014, which aims to understand how the brain operates in people with deep spiritual and religious beliefs. Well, I expect it may be disquieting for some people to hear that uh profound spiritual feelings aroused the same areas of the brain as other pleasurable stimuli ranging from love and sex and music to drugs. Um, We'll discuss this issue more when we come back from our next, our first rather, commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
2: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, You can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
0: Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like.
3: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. And in the previous segment, we were talking about a surprising brain imaging study showing that the pleasure reward center of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, lights up when people are having powerful spiritual feelings. Um, those who are uh, devout members of the Mormon Church. Um, <clears throat> now, this is, in a way, not too surprising. Uh, this is the same area of the brain that lights up if other very powerfully stimulating and rewarding stimuli are received, depending on how the person receives it, uh, feelings of love, uh, pleasure from sex, gambling, drugs, music, Folks, we only have one pleasure and reward center in our brain, and you know it depends on the individual, their personality, their temperament, their genetics, their upbringing. What someone is going to seek out in the way of pleasure or reward, um, but <clears throat> regardless of what it is, that's what's going to show when you put them in an fMRI scanner. And they're doing something that stimulates it. Uh, so now we know that at least for members of one faith who are particularly devout, and again, this is probably generalizable to other faiths given what they found, uh, that same area will also light up when it comes to someone having a powerful spiritual experience, and feeling close to God. There you have it. Something profound to think about uh, for this time of year. Next up on psychiatry today, autism is a very puzzling and very scary set of disorders, autism spectrum disorders, as they're called as a group. It has been blamed erroneously on lots of different things, most notoriously, vaccines. This was debunked and demysted a long time ago. Uh, but I think the reason so many erroneous ideas about the causes of autism persist out there and take hold is that we don't really know what are the causes of it. Uh, but some researchers may have turned up a clue as to the genetics of some Autism Spectrum Disorders, and this comes to us from the Institute of Science and Technology in Austria. Autism Spectrum Disorders affect around 1% of the world's population and are characterized by a range of difficulties in social interaction and communication. In a new study published in the journal Cell, on December 1st, a team of researchers has identified a new genetic cause of ASD, or Autism Spectrum Disorders. The finding is significant. There are many different genetic mutations causing autism, and they are all very rare. This makes it difficult to develop effective treatments. The analysis not only revealed a new autism-linked gene, but also identified the mechanism by which its mutation causes autism. Excitingly, mutations in other genes share the same autism-causing mechanism, indicating that they may have underscored a subgroup of autism spectrum disorders. The identification of novel genes, especially in heterogeneous diseases such as autism, is difficult. However, as a result of a collaborative effort, they were able to identify mutations in a gene called SLC7A5 in several patients born to consanguineous marriages and diagnosed with syndromic autism. This gene, again it's called SLC7A5, well what does it do and why would it be involved in autism? It transports a certain type of amino acids, the so-called branched chain amino acids, into the brain. Or rather the article should say that it codes the gene codes for a protein, which does that. It's not the gene itself. Now to understand how mutations of this SLC seventy five gene lead to autism, the researchers studied mice in which the gene is removed at the barrier between the blood and the brain. This reduces the levels of branched-chain amino acids in their brain and interferes with protein synthesis in brain cells. Consequently, the mice showed reduced social interaction and other changes in their behavior. These changes are also observed in other mouse models, if you will, of autism. In a previous study... Researchers identified a mutation in a gene that is involved in the breakdown of these same amino acids in several patients with autism spectrum disorder, intellectual disability, and epilepsy. Of course, not all genes causing autism affect amino acid levels, and these forms of autism are unarguably very rare. But it is possible that even more autism-causing genes fall in this group. Notably, the researchers were able to treat some of the neurological abnormalities in the adult mice missing this SLC-75 gene at the blood-brain barrier. Now, lest you think it could be addressed just by orally ingesting more branch-chain amino acids or foods or beverages containing them. Again, we're talking about getting them into the brain, getting them through the blood-brain barrier. And you're not going to be able to do that just by ingesting them orally. So what the researchers did was they delivered the branch-chain amino acids straight into the mice's brains for three weeks. Um, And You know, this is accomplished by making a very, very tiny hole into the skull and introducing the branched-chain amino acids through a micropipette-type apparatus. Now, doing this, the authors observed an improvement in the behavioral symptoms, especially the lack of social interaction. That got better. The research found a potential treatment for certain symptoms presented in this form of autism spectrum disorder, or this model of it, in mice, but translation into a treatment for ASD in human patients will require many years of additional research. Uh, believe me, they are not proposing to drill holes in the skulls of human patients in Introduce a micropipette to deliver branched-chain amino acids directly to the brain. Um, (laughs) That would be absurdly invasive and dangerous. Uh, So there are other methods that will be studied to see if this could be treated. Uh, Probably gene therapy to correct the missing or mutated gene that results in the decreased levels of branched-chain amino acids in the first place. But uh, it's going to require many years of additional research. These results contrast with the idea that autism spectrum disorders are always irreversible conditions. The way they treated the symptoms in the mice, of course, like we just talked about, can't be used in humans, but they show some of the neurological complications presented by mice missing this gene can be rescued. And so it is possible that eventually human patients may be treated as well. Well, so there you have it. Um, Hopefully, word will get out more that autism has something to do with genetic mutations and not anything to do with vaccines, probably little to do with any environmental stimuli, uh, you know, such as uh, pollution, poisons, or other uh, environmental toxins. And then, of course, you, you have some studies which indicate things like advanced maternal or paternal age can affect uh, neurodevelopmental outcomes and increased risk of certain psychiatric illness. But uh, the the progress in finding genetic causes is going to be key in helping us to be able to do something about autism spectrum disorders. <clears throat> you know, uh, there's been so much more written about alternative treatments for mental illness and to help cope with stress. Uh, Things like meditation, yoga, tai chi. At times in the past, these were thought of as just fringe or, or new age ideas that were not in the mainstream and certainly not backed up by mainstream science. Well, that has changed tremendously. In recent years, there is a burgeoning amount of literature from mainstream science, uh, respected academic medical research centers uh, generating data on the benefits of these previously alternative treatments, and now I would argue mainstream, mainstream treatments Uh, and articles documenting the benefits of these treatments being published in legitimate, scholarly, peer-reviewed journals. And it's a very, very exciting development because it's well known that as far as the treatments that we do have, um, medication is limited by uh, side effects and also the fact that they don't all work for everyone who needs them. And there's also limits to patient acceptability as far as medications. Psychotherapy um, is effective, but it depends in large part on the skills of the practitioner, the connection between the client and the therapist. And there's also very limited insurance coverage for it. So after this next break, I have a couple of studies, one on yoga and one on Tai Chi We'll be right back with that and more. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
2: This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient, because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care
0: counts. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Well, next up on tonight's podcast, those of you who regularly practice yoga are going to learn something about why it always makes you feel better those of you who suffer from depression are going to learn why practicing yoga can help you. The meditation technique uh, is based on breathing and it's specifically Sudarshan Kriya yoga, sorry if I butchered the pronunciation. It helped alleviate severe depression in people who did not fully respond to antidepressant treatments. And this was reported in a new study published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, and it comes to us from researchers at the University of Pennsylvania. The study bolsters the science behind the use of controlled yogic breathing to help battle depression. In a randomized controlled pilot study, Which again is, uh, that's the the gold standard in terms of medical research. They found significant improvement in symptoms of depression and anxiety in patients on medication for major depression who participated in the breathing technique compared to patients on medication who didn't. After two months, the group who did the yoga had lower Hamilton Depression Rating Scale scores by several points, while the control group who did not do the yoga showed no improvements. The Hamilton Depression Rating Scale is one of the most widely used clinician-administered depression assessments. It scores mood, interest in activities, energy, suicidal thoughts, and feelings of guilt among other symptoms. More than half of the 41 million Americans who take antidepressants do not fully respond. Add-on therapies are often prescribed to enhance the effects of the drugs in these patients, but they typically offer limited additional benefits and come with side effects that can curb use, prolonging the depressive episode. What's more, patients who don't fully respond to antidepressants are especially at risk of relapse. With such a large portion of patients who do not fully respond to antidepressants, it is important we find new avenues that work best for each person to beat their depression. This is a promising, lower-cost therapy that could potentially serve as an effective, non-drug approach for patients battling this disease. The meditation technique, which is practiced in both a group setting and at home, includes a series of sequential, rhythm-specific breathing exercises that bring people into a deep, restful, and meditative state, slow and calm breaths alternating with fast and stimulating breaths. Sudarshan Kriya Yoga gives people an active method to experience a deep meditative state that's easy to learn and incorporate in diverse settings. In past studies, the practice has demonstrated a positive response in patients with milder forms of depression depression due to alcohol dependence, and in patients with major depressive disorder. However, there are no clinical studies investigating its use for depression in an outpatient setting. Past studies suggest that yoga and other controlled breathing techniques can potentially adjust the the nervous system to reduce stress hormones. Overall, the authors also note well-designed studies that evaluate the benefits of yoga to treat depression are lacking, despite increased interest in the ancient Indian practice. <clears throat> Millions of Americans participate in some form of yoga every year. In the study, researchers enrolled 25 patients suffering from major depressive disorder who were depressed despite more than eight weeks of antidepressant medication treatment. The medicated patients were randomized to either the breathing intervention group or the waitlist control group for eight weeks. The waitlist group was offered the yoga intervention after the study. During the first week, Participants completed a six session program which featured the Sudarshan Kriya yoga in addition to yoga postures, sitting meditation, and stress reduction, stress education rather. For weeks two through eight, the participants attended weekly yoga follow-up sessions and completed a home practice version of the technique. Patients in the yoga group showed a significantly greater improvement in Hamilton Depression Rating Scale scores compared to patients in the wait list group. With a mean baseline Hamilton score of 22, which that is a very high score, that indicates severe depression, and at that was at the beginning of the study, the group that completed the breathing technique for the Frol The full eight-week sessions uh, improved scores by 10.27 points on average, a reduction by almost half, which is remarkable. The waitlist group didn't show any improvement at all, as you might expect. Patients in the yoga group also showed significant mean reductions in the total scores of the self-reported Beck depression, uh, that was a 15.48 improvement on the Beck depression inventory. And then on the Beck anxiety inventory, a, a 5.19 point improvement versus the waitlist control group. <clears throat> Results of the pilot study suggest the feasibility and promise of this particular type of yoga as an add on intervention or major depressive disorder patients who have not responded to antidepressants. The next step in this research is to conduct a larger study evaluating how this intervention impacts brain structure and function in patients who have major depression. So there you have it, the benefits of at least one type of yoga technique uh, and specifically the yogic breathing, to help relieve depression. And next, we have a study that shows Tai Chi proves feasible and beneficial for veterans with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, in a couple of remarks about this before we even get into that study, we already know that Tai Chi helps... Uh, in some ways, not just general stress reduction, but specifically, we know that Tai Chi helps elderly people with balance and thus helps to prevent falls. <clears throat> now, uh, as far as treating PTSD in veterans, we absolutely need more and better treatments. Uh, the Veterans Administration's clinics tend to cling to the uh, flooding or exposure therapy with response prevention, and while it can be effective at times, there are widespread uh, problems with lack of patient acceptability of this technique uh, because it causes them to directly confront the traumatic stimulus head-on. Um and, you know, we talked, uh, previously on this podcast, on last week's podcast about <clears throat> how locally here in Atlanta, there's a program, uh, for wounded warrior vets at the Georgia Aquarium, yeah, using, using just scuba diving in the tank with the aquarium animals to help alleviate symptoms of PTSD. Uh, but, Tai Chi certainly uh, doesn't involve the equipment, <laughs> uh, there isn't any equipment, much lower cost. So let's hear about this uh, study. The veterans with symptoms of PTSD who participated in Tai Chi not only would recommend it to a friend, but they also found the ancient Chinese tradition helped with their symptoms. Including managing intrusive thoughts, difficulties with concentration, and physiological arousal. All of those are hallmark signs and symptoms of PTSD. The findings appear in the journal British Medical Journal Open, are the first to examine the feasibility, qualitative feedback, and satisfaction associated with Tai Chi treatment for this population. In the general population, the lifetime risk of developing PTSD is estimated to be 8.7%. Among veterans seeking Veterans Administration Clinic services, the risk is higher, with an estimate of 23.1%. PTSD and its symptoms often become chronic and are associated with a loss of physical, financial, and psychological well-being. Tai Chi as practiced today is a graceful form of exercise that involves a series of movements performed in a slow, focused manner, accompanied by deep breathing and mindfulness, In addition to physical improvements in flexibility, strength, and pain management, there is evidence that Tai Chi improves sleep and reduces depression and anger. Seventeen veterans with post-traumatic stress symptoms enrolled in a four-session Introduction to Tai Chi program. After the final session, Participants reported favorable impressions of the program. Nearly 94% were very or mostly satisfied, and all participants indicated that they would like to participate in future Tai Chi programs and would recommend it to a friend. In addition, they described feeling very engaged during the sessions and found Tai Chi to be helpful for managing distressing PTSD symptoms. We'll have more on this study and other mental health-related news when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
4: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www. Docs4Patient docsforpatientcarefoundation.org That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, we're talking about how Tai Chi has been found to help veterans with PTSD. Now, according to the researchers, this study provides evidence for the feasibility of enrolling and engaging veterans with symptoms of PTSD in a Tai Chi exercise program. The findings also indicate that Tai Chi is a safe physical activity, and appropriate for individuals with varying physical capabilities. Given the positive findings, additional research is needed to empirically evaluate Tai Chi as a treatment for symptoms of PTSD. To me, what's most uh, notable rather, about the study is, remember before we were talking about the uh, problems with patient acceptability of other treatments, uh, and this one had a very high rate of acceptability. Um, and what ninety-four percent said they would recommend it to a friend or something like that. Um, so they this technique really resonated with the vets with PTSD as something they found helpful. And, you know, therefore, I think it would behoove the VA to put resources into uh, expanding the treatment options for PTSD for vets to include Tai Chi and let it be uh, among a menu of potential treatments they can choose rather than trying to uh, <clears throat> set up their PTSD clinics as uh, just one treatment for everybody. And I think that would be much, much better for the veterans who need relief from PTSD symptoms. I also dare say I think it would be important for the morale of those who treat them. Uh, because, I mean, it would bound to improve because they would see more of the vets getting better. All right. Let's now turn our attention to musical training. And brain connections in children. I want those of you who sent your kids to music lessons and then had to put up with your kids complaining you know, interminably about having to go to the music lessons and, you know, having to work so hard to get your kids to practice, to listen up to this, as miserable as they claim to be about going to those music lessons, it definitely paid off and I'm about to tell you how. Researchers have found that musical training creates new brain connections. Taking music lessons increases brain fiber connections in children and may be useful in treating autism and ADHD, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. This, according to a study being presented this week at the annual meeting of the Radiological Society of North America. It's been known that musical instruction benefits children with these disorders, but this study has given us a better understanding of exactly how the brain changes and where these new fiber connections are occurring. The researchers studied 23 healthy children between the ages of 5 and 6 years old. All of the children were right-handed, and had no history of sensory perception or neurological disor- excuse me, disorders. None of the children had been trained in any artistic discipline in the past. The study participants underwent pre- and post-musical training evaluation with a very specialized type of brain imaging called DTI or diffusion tensor imaging of the brain. DTI is an advanced type of MRI technique, which identifies microstructural changes in the brain's white matter. The white matter are the uh, extended long processes that come out of the cell body and communicate messages from one brain cell to the next. These are like the wires um, in the electrical circuits in the brain, and they actually have insulation wrapped around them as well. Now, <clears throat> experiencing music at an early age can contribute to better brain development, optimizing the creation and establishment of neural networks and stimulating the existing brain tracts. The brain's white matter is composed of of millions of nerve fibers called axons that, as I mentioned before, act like communication cables connecting various regions of the brain. Diffusion tensor imaging produces a measurement called fractional anisotropy, or FA, of the movement of extracellular water molecules along axons. It's basically just a measure of uh, the activity of the axons and um, how much activity there is in certain communication cables, if you will, between brain cells, and therefore is a measure of how information is transmitted between different regions of the brain. In healthy white matter, the direction of the water outside The cells is fairly uniform and measures high in F.A. When the water movement is more random, the F.A. values decrease, suggesting abnormalities. Over the course of life, the maturation of brain tracts and connections between motor, auditory, and other areas allow the development of numerous cognitive abilities, including musical skills. Previous studies have linked autism spectrum and ADHD with decreases in volume, fiber connections, and FA in the certain tracts in the frontal cortex of the brain. This suggests that the low connectivity in the frontal cortex, in an area of the brain involved in complex cognitive processes, is a biomarker of these disorders of autism spectrum and ADHD. Now after the children in the study completed nine months of musical instruction using boom-whackers, these are percussion tubes cut to the exact length to create pitches in a diatonic scale. The DTI results showed an increase in FA and axon fiber length in different areas of the brain most notably in these areas we talked about in the frontal cortex. So the musical training not only strengthened these connections, I mean, actually the, the cables, if you will, the axons, uh, became longer. Um, and so <clears throat> when a child receives musical instruction, their brains are asked to complete certain tasks which involve hearing, motor, cognition, emotion, and social skills, which activate these different brain areas. The results may have occurred because of the need to create more connections between the two hemispheres of the brain. The researchers believe that the results of the study could aid in creating targeted strategies for interventions in treating autism spectrum disorders and ADHD. Now, to get back to my original point. All right, so let's say your kid does not have ADHD or autism spectrum disorders. It was still a very good and very helpful thing to have musical training. Again, um, strengthening the connections that uh, take place between different brain regions, uh, a significant benefit of musical training and all the aspects of it. Next up on Psychiatry Today, reconditioning the brain to overcome fear. Researchers have discovered a way to remove specific fears from the brain using a combination of artificial intelligence and brain scanning technology. Their technique, published in the inaugural edition of Nature Human Behavior, could lead to a new way of treating patients with conditions such as PTSD and phobias. Fear-related disorders affect around 1 in 14 people and place considerable pressure on mental health services. Currently, a common approach is for patients to undergo some sort of aversion therapy in which they confront their fear about being exposed to it in the hope that they will learn that the thing they're fearful of isn't harmful at all. However, this therapy is inherently unpleasant, and many choose not to pursue it. Now a team of neuroscientists... From the University of Cambridge, Japan, and the U.S. has found a way of unconsciously removing a fear memory from the brain. They developed a method to read and identify a fear memory using a technique called decoded neurofeedback. It used brain scanning to monitor activity in the brain, identify complex patterns of activity that resembled a specific fear memory. They created this fear memory in 17 volunteers, by administering a brief electric shock when they saw a certain image on a computer. When the pattern was detected, researchers overwrote the fear memory by giving the subjects a reward instead. They repeated the procedure over three days. Volunteers were told that a monetary reward they earned depended on their brain activity, but they didn't know how. By continuously connecting subtle patterns of brain activity linked to the electric shock instead with a small reward, the scientists hoped to gradually and unconsciously override the fear memory. In effect, the features of the memory that were previously tuned to predict the painful electric shock were now being reprogrammed to predict something positive instead. The team then tested what happened when they showed the volunteers the pictures previously associated with the shocks. Remarkably, they could no longer see the typical fear skin-sweating response, nor could they identify enhanced activity in the amygdala, the brain's fear center. This meant they'd been able to reduce the fear memory without the volunteers ever consciously experiencing the fear memory in the process. Although the sample size in the study was relatively small, the team hopes the technique can be developed into a clinical treatment for patients with PTSD or phobias. Uh, So perhaps what they would do is elicit a person's given fear response, uh, detect the particular brain pattern associated with it, and then extinguish it by replacing it with another type of response. An interesting development. And that will be all for tonight's podcast. So I hope that you found the information interesting. And I enjoyed bringing it to you, but I overall hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. Thanks for listening.
2: This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.